Welcome to the Emerging Temple broadcast for November 13th, 2019. I am Michael Obeyer. I will be your guide for the rest of this broadcast. At Emerging Temple, we seek to analyze current events within the context of God's plan for mankind, a plan in which he intends at the end of time to raise up a people who shall govern with him. Before I go any further, I want to encourage you once more to like our page, to share with your family and friends. And if there's a bell icon at the bottom of your screen, I'd like you to hit it so you can get notified anytime we upload new videos. Also, if there's a subscribe, I'd like you to hit on that so you could be one of our members. Also, if you would like to support us, I encourage you to go to patreon.com where you can be a supporter of this page and this, um, these, these messages that we're bringing forth. Um, you can also visit our website, um, www.templeoftruth.us, where you can you know, donate if you feel like it to help us get this um, program out there and get equipment so we can reach out to the rest of the world. Um, today, I want us to, yesterday we spoke about um, the um, African new currency that was trying to be put in place. And we juxtapose that with what God had spoken about in scripture. Um, it, we, I think we looked at the book of the Revelation. We looked at where it said no one could buy or sell except they had the mark. We tried to see how these things could be related. Today, I have something else that I think we should talk about, and that is the law of karma. Um, the apostle Paul said, do not, be, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. And you see, in that context, whatever is true for man is true for nations. I want us to look at the way nations have gone far from God as, as almost as a matter of policy. Treaties are not kept. Um, we've had for decades now, the people of Palestine, who have been uh, without a homeland. For decades now, we promised them we, that we'd work with them to get a two-state solution for them to have a home and for the Israelis to have a home for themselves. And while we have carried these people along for 30, 40 years, all of a sudden, that's, we just dropped it. And nobody seems to take note of that. President Trump, got up the other day and unilaterally declared that the United States, the most dominant power in the world, the supposed arbiter between these two parties, um, was going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Now, I know a lot of people out there are going to say to me, Mike, you know, the Bible says Israel has a capital and it's Jerusalem and all that. I really don't want to get into any theology with you right now. I'll just tell you straight up, that has nothing to do with this, okay? Um, Jesus, when he died on the cross, told us it is finished. Okay, Paul said, all things have passed away, everything has become new because we're in Christ. Okay, the kingdom of God and the Israel of God, according to Paul, are those who believe in Jesus Christ. So without casting aspersions on any person or any group of people, I don't want to get into that. Okay, I'm talking right now about fairness and treaty and the fact that once you make an oath, you must be ready to keep that oath. Because if you do not keep that oath, maybe not today, but someday soon, you or your descendants will pay for that. And the reason why I am addressing this issue is because I live in America. I am an American. And many people 
who are listening to me, you also are Americans. And you cannot escape the judgment of God when our leaders swear an oath and sign treaties and don't keep them. We will pay for these things. And we need to understand how to wash ourselves clean from this onto a generation that believes that they can be treaty breakers and get away with it. It's not going to happen. We will not escape the judgment of God for these things. And so today, I want to share with us, you know, something from some things from scripture that, you know, we need to understand. We all know the story of um, Esau and Jacob. Um, Esau was the elder first son, and according to God's law and tradition, Esau was supposed to be the inheritor of the birthright. One day he came back home really hungry after hunting and not catching anything. And he saw his younger brother, Jacob, preparing um, some food. And he asked him if he could give him some of that food. And Jacob said, well, I'll give you some of that food on one condition. He said, what was that? He said, well, on condition you give me your birthright. And Esau said, man, I'm so hungry. I'm almost about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me if I die? And he said, okay, okay, I'll give you my birthright. I don't really know if the guy was serious or whatever it was. It came out of his mouth and Jacob held him to it. Now listen, Jacob went ahead and got that birthright promise from his father. Many of you know the story. But I want to show you something. Because Jacob used deceit, by the way, the name Jacob means, this, this, uh, it means, um, uh, what's a what's a what's a more appropriate word to use? I I don't want to say deceiver because that's not exactly what it means. But it means you know if, if what you and I might today say con man. That's what the word Jacob means. It actually means con man. Okay, and um, he cons his brother and takes his brother's birthright. Okay, now let's look at the story and. You know, let's look at the story and I'll talk to you a little bit about some of the consequences to Jacob for what he did. Okay, so let's go to our Bibles. Let's go to the book of Genesis. Okay, and let's look for um, Genesis 25. Genesis 25. Okay, so from verse 29, it says, and Jacob sub pottage. And Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same sod pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And Esau swore to him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink, and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay. Now, when you read this, on the surface, you go, well, Mike, what are you saying? He gave up his birthright. No one forced him. That's correct. But now we're going to see the beginning of trouble for Jacob because he took something legitimately that wasn't his. Okay? 
he tricked his brother to a treaty, which his brother signed. But at the end of the day, from the moment he leaves home, he begins, if you know the story of Jacob, you know the things he goes through. But he begins to receive not just the blessings of Esau that should have gone to Esau, but he also begins to receive the troubles of the things that belong to Esau, beginning with his wife. Jacob ended up loving the second child of the family he wanted to marry from, but he was forced to marry the first child. I want you to think about that. The first daughter should have gone to the first son, but because Jacob had stolen or seized by deception the birthright of the first son, God put him in a circumstance where even though he did not want the first daughter, he had to marry the first daughter. And when he pushed and married also the second daughter, God closed the womb of the second daughter. She couldn't even have children. Let's take a look at that. Let me not spoil the fun for you, okay? Let's go back to Genesis. And this time we're going to Genesis 29. Genesis chapter 29, we'll take it from verse 16. And here he's talking about Laban. Laban is the father-in-law of Jacob. Jacob has run away from home. He's, at this point, Jacob has gotten the birthright. You know, his father has blessed him. He pretended he was Esau. You know the story. He got the birthright. He's fled. Now he's gone to his mother's hometown. And there he saw a beautiful girl. And he wants to marry the girl. And the girl's father is this Mr. Laban here. And he says, well, look, son, you want to marry my daughter? That's cool. But, you know, you got to work for me for seven years and I'll give her to you. And the Bible said, oh, God, he loved this girl so much that the seven years was to him like seven days. All right. Now, after the seven years is over, he's expected to get his nice, beautiful wife. Let's find out what goes on. All right. So we're going to take this from Genesis chapter 29 from verse 16. It says, and Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. So the older daughter wasn't that pretty, but the young one was really pretty. Okay? Verse 18. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. So I said, look, you know, we're related. We're the same family. We're, you know, your mom is my sister or whatever. Well, you know, you, I should, it's better for her to marry you than go marry some guy from the outside. Sounds good. Verse 21. And, sorry, verse 20. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had for her. And Jacob said unto Laban, Hey, my seven years is up. Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, the elder daughter, not Rachel, his daughter, and brought her to him. And he went in unto her. So, 
she has the veil over her face, you know, like in the wedding, you have the veil over your face. So he thought this was Rachel. Okay, verse 24. And Laban gave him his daughter Leah, Zip, Leah, Zipper his maid for an handmaid. Okay, sorry, let me say that again. I'm, I'm, I apologize. Verse 24. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah, Zipper his maid as a handmaid. So he says, okay, you're getting married, so I'm going to give you this girl to be your assistant, you know, to help you um, cook, etc. if you get pregnant. Okay, verse 25. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, Jacob said to Laban, what is this that thou hast done to me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? He's complaining about being ripped off, <laughs> Jacob. Okay, verse 28. And Laban said, It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give thee, give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so, and fulfilled her week, and he gave him, Rachel his daughter, to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Biller, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Surely the Lord had looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And she conceived again. Well, I'll, I'll stop here. Okay. Now, I just want you, I just want this to be a background for you. I just want us to take a look, listen to this as a sort of, you know, background. I want you to see what's going on here. Jacob is the second born. Rachel is the second born. Leah is the first born. And Esau, the brother of Jacob, was the first born. Now, Jacob wanted the birthright of Esau, and through deception, he took it. Well, guess what? The very next day, he's out there, meets a girl he wants to marry, goes to the family, and the father of the girl does exactly to him what he had done to his brother, deceived him, knowing fully well what the land, the constitution of the country was, that the younger daughter cannot marry before the elder daughter, who says, look, sorry, son, I know what I told you. I know what you and I agreed. But you know what? No matter what you and I agree, it can never supersede the constitution of the land. Well, I do want to give her to you. So, but you're just going to have to work another seven years for her. So Jacob had no choice. He had to marry the first daughter who he did not want to marry. And now he had to work seven more years for the daughter he did want to marry. Are you seeing what's going on here? Jacob sold something and now he's reaping it. Okay. Now, if you go back, you look at Jacob's life, you see all the things that go on with him in his life. Okay. He does get all the benefits of the first son, but he also take, gets all the trouble of the first son as well. Okay. There's so much more in this, but I'm not trying to go into it. I want to just use that as an opener to introduce you to the topic because what I want us to look at is not just so much what happens with individuals because you understand that. I want to show us from scripture what happens with nations, 
why a country, a great country like America, cannot afford not to keep its word. And the people of the country cannot be silent. Just, you just can't keep quiet as though it's none of your business. Well, you are going to pay for the things, the decisions that the leaders of America make. You and your children and your grandchildren are going to pay for these decisions. Okay? Now, I want us to take a look, as I often do, at a short clip. This is not really short. It's about 10 minutes. Okay? But it's about the treaties that America went into with the native peoples of this land before we came here and how we broke those treaties. But as of today, we still have not paid for breaking those treaties. But we know, God, that it might be 100 years, it might be 400 years, but someday he's going to show up and tell us it's payback time. If you are not in Christ and you are not walking in what Christ has asked us to do, when payback time comes, there will be no escape for you and I. So let's, before I go any further, let's, let's look at, let's listen to this clip. It's about 10 minutes, okay? By the early 19th century, the U.S. was rapidly growing, both in size and power. Land-hungry and ambitious, the new country was also drastically changing its policies towards the Indian nations. And nowhere was this more evident than in the treaties. The United States' primary interest in treaty-making was to acquire Indian land. And so the treaties were used for that purpose, especially as the United States found itself in a position to pretty much dictate the terms of the treaty. And so the treaties morphed from this friendship and reciprocity sort of relationship into a very one-sided thing. There's almost a mythology about this that somehow when the pilgrims arrived, they were dragging land behind them. <laughs> there was no land brought here. The land here was native nations. And this is what the United States needed. It's what it wanted. They wanted all of it. They wanted everything. The greed came in. Well, we have a little tract here now. Now we need a little more. And, well, we need to go make another treaty. We didn't understand that eventually those treaty-making processes ended up to the acquisition of all of our ancestral homeland. That land was a part of us. That land helped us be. That land was who we were and who we are. The command of removal came unexpectedly upon most of us. There was a time that we noticed several overloaded wagons were passing our home, yet we did not grasp the meaning. Then one day, wagons stopped. We were to be taken away and leave our homes, never to return. To get what they wanted, U.S. officials brokered treaties through any means available. Their tactics were so corrupt that the once trusted treaties became quickly known as bad paper. 
there were people at these treaty negotiations who would do anything to get an agreement on the table. And so there was very routinely bribery, individual payments made to tribal leaders, uh, alcohol would be used to put people in, a, in an agreeable frame of mind, and even coercion to say to people, you must sign this agreement or else. Every means of trickery and fraud was employed against Native nations. The United States would appoint a false leadership, people who had no right to speak for the tribe, and say, you're the leader of this tribe, sign this paper giving away all your land. As the century progressed, the treaties became more and more lopsided, a far cry from the parallel paths of the Gaswenta. Despite appeals from the Indian nations, the U.S. kept on its new trajectory, rationalizing its aggressive actions along the way. They have neither the intelligence, the industry, the moral habits, nor the desire of improvement. The tribes of Indians inhabiting this country were fierce savages. To leave them in possession of their country was to leave the country a wilderness. It's important in the great American mythology to describe the Americas as wilderness. Because if it's wilderness, then there's really nobody to dispossess. It was okay to come here and prosper and conveniently forget that there were already people and civilizations in place. At first we had something to eat, but that gave out and we were starving. We came to a slippery elm tree and ate the bark of that. Lots took sick and died. As Americans successfully pushed the bounds of the frontier, they not only believed that they were destined to take over the land and prosper, they believed that God was the one who put them there to do it. They believed that it was God's will, that the United States should be a continental nation, stretching from the Atlantic to the Pacific. As each wave of immigration would come, they'd move into an area. The United States would then make some sort of arrangement with the tribe to get that land from them. And then more would come, and they'd advance the frontier even further. The power of manifest destiny, of expansion, of inevitability, of God's providence helped to rally people around not only the idea of Americans as entitled to North America, but rallied them around the idea that Indian people were barriers to civilization and barriers to progress. No matter how many treaties were signed or how much land they gave to the United States, the Indian was still in the way. This was known as the Indian problem. This so-called problem continued despite a decades-old policy to force Indians to swap their land east of the Mississippi for land west of it. The Indians would then move to those western parts and away from the Americans. This plan was simply called removal. The Removal Act was the centerpiece of Andrew Jackson's political agenda and it was very controversial at the time. It was very widely debated. There was lots of discussion across the country and very many prominent people spoke up against it. Will the American government steal? Will it lie? Will it kill? I have no desire to see the poor remnants of a once powerful people. The removal bill represents oppression with a vengeance. 
the removal process, it was, all right, you've made these treaties. Now, you can have one of two things. You can keep your sovereignty, but you can't keep your land. But if you keep your land, then you have to assimilate and no longer be Indian. You will have sovereignty or you have your land. You can't have both. Across the United States, the Removal Act divided the country. But across the Indian nations, reaction was unanimous. We are surrounded by white people, and there are encroachments made. What assurances have we that similar ones will not be made on us should we remove to the Mississippi? Look here, Father. Our lands belong to us. We shall keep them. We do not wish to talk to you anymore. We had already been fighting to keep that land. And sure enough, when the government was coming in there to take us out of that land, we fought even more. But at some point, you have to realize that this fighting is all gonna be about death. And death is coming. Then I need to be protecting my family. And I want my children to survive. So we have to endure this removal. Many of the tribes did choose to accept removal as a means of maintaining the tribal nation. What choice was there? After decades of engagement, they could no longer resist. And so they gave up their lands, they gave up their homes, they gave up their fields and forests, they gave up literally their way of life in order to be able to stay together and be what they were. We are poor, but we are free. No white man controls our footsteps. Some try to assimilate to avoid removal. Some were removed completely. But in the end, every nation met the same fate. Every nation had to give up land. Brothers, you cannot remain where you are now. You have but one remedy within your reach, and that is to remove to the West. May the Great Spirit teach you how to choose. The loss of land was devastating, and so was the loss of lives. The most famous of these incidents was the Cherokee Nation's Trail of Tears, but there were numerous other trails just as violent and just as crushing. Everyone had to walk. My baby brother, Joel, was four years old. I was just eight, but I took my turn at carrying him because he could not walk much. I would get so tired, I'd think I was going to die, but I would hang on to him. I was so afraid they would kill him. I saw them kill babies who were too big to be carried and would give out. That really was a road of death. People were falling on the side of the road or being shot or being murdered on the road and being left there. The removal process was done in a way that was not efficient in making people survive. Of the millions of Indian people that lived before the first colonists arrived, by the end of the 19th century, only 250,000 remained. The removal of a tribe was certain to destroy all of the things they knew about taking care of themselves, all of their medicines, all of their foods. 
Everything about them had to change in order to survive. It can only be understood as an act of destruction. When you move a people from one place to another, when you displace people, when you wrench people from their homelands, wasn't that genocide? We don't make the case that there was genocide. We know there was, yet here we are. When we were forced to leave our land, we took the fires with us. We took the embers along. Then when we got to Oklahoma, we rekindled the old fire. Old home or new home, it is the same fire. Bible says, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. Whatsoever people sow, that shall they reap. And I want to say something to us. You might be Native American. You might be black. You might be white. You might be Asian American. You might be any religion. But wherever you are in this world, you are going to pay for all the wickedness that has been done by mankind over time. It's a strange thing, God's own vengeance. It doesn't come selectively. The only thing that protects you from God's vengeance is the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember when the angel of death came to Egypt? The Bible says that the angel of death was going to kill every firstborn in Egypt. And if any child of, if, if, if the Israelites did not put that blood on their door, they too would die. The Bible says even the Egyptians who believed Moses and put blood on their door, the angel of death did not touch them. I want to say to all of us, who can understand and hear me loud and clear. Wherever you are in this world, there is coming great torment, there's coming a great war, there's coming great tribulation and great fire and destruction. In Africa, in Europe, in America, in Asia, in the islands, in the Pacific, in the Arctic, all over this world, there'll be nowhere when the vengeance of God comes for all the things that have been done. Just a few weeks ago, President Trump got up and said, he's going to keep the oil in Syria, somebody else's country, where no one invited him, somebody else's land. And I know President Trump, he says all kinds of things. But you know what got me? It wasn't what he said. It was the silence of the American people. You heard your president say he will take somebody's oil and not one person thought it was unbecoming. We do deserve the things that are coming upon us because we have chosen not to repent. We have chosen not to turn away from our wickedness and self-centeredness. Therefore, 
we will get our just rewards. For those who believe Christ, for those who believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you can be saved. Trust in him, obey him, walk humbly, repent of your wrongs, separate yourself from the wrongs of your family, from the wrongs of your friends, from the wrongs of your nation. Separate yourself from this untoward generation is what the apostle Peter said in the book of Acts. Believe in Jesus and you and your household shall be saved. You know, when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt after Moses had died, Joshua took over as the leader of Israel. And there was a tribe called the Gibeonites, a small tribe, foreign tribe. And when they saw how God was giving victory to Israel over all the great powerful nations around them, the Gibeonites became scared because they knew very soon Israel would show up at their doorstep. And they pretended to come from far away and went to Joshua and asked Joshua to go into a peace treaty with them. And the Bible says that Joshua and the elders of Israel went to a peace treaty with them, not knowing that these were their enemies from close by. Why don't we look at that in the scripture and see what happened? This is going to be in the book of uh, Joshua. Chapter 9. Okay, from verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, when all the kings which were on this side Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys, and in all the coasts of the great sea, over against Lebanon, the Hittite, and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard thereof, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel, with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard, what Joshua, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, that they did work willy, wily, so wilyly, and went and made as if they had been ambassadors, and took old sacks upon their asses, and wine, and wine bottles, old, and rent, and bound up, and old shoes, and doubled upon their feet, and old garments, and upon them all the bread of their provisions was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal and said unto him, and to the men of Israel, we be come from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the, unto the Hivites, peradventure, ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? So these Gibeonites are also called Hivites, okay? So if you hear the word Hivites, okay? Verse 8. And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are you? And from whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come, because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, that were beyond Jordan, to Sion, king of Hashnon, and to Og, king of Bashan, which was as Asherah. Wherefore, 
our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us saying, take victuals with you for the journey and go to meet them and say unto them, we are your servants. Therefore now make a league, make a treaty with us. This our bread we took for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. But now behold, it is dry and it is moldy. So they say, look, look, we, we, we came with, you know, fresh wine and bread. But, you know, we came from so far away. Look, it's all spoiled. Meanwhile, they had actually come from their country with old bread and dry wine. There was no wine there. They're pretending. They're trying to get Israel to go into treaty with them. Now, notice, even though they're going to get the treaty by deception, God is going to hold Israel accountable for the treaty. Okay? Verse 13. And these bottles of wine which we filled were new, and behold, they be rent, and these our garments and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey. Verse 14. And the men took off their victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. So the Israelites embraced them, accepted them, accepted the, the people, but didn't go to God to say, should we go into agreement with these people or not? They just, you know, you know it's like sometimes you get married and, you know, you didn't really ask God and then you're stuck, okay? <laughs> you married the wrong person and that's it. That's what's going on here, all right? All right, verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them, and it came to pass at the end of these days, after they had made a league with them, a treaty, that they heard that they were their neighbors and that they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came unto their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Chepar and Beeroth and Kijath Jerim. And the children of Israel smote them not because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation murmured against the princes. Okay, so guess what? Because the rulers, the leaders, the governors, the princes of Israel had already made a covenant with these people, when the other Israelites found out, oh, wait a second, these guys are our enemies. They're nearby us here. They got angry with their leaders, but they didn't touch the Gibeonites because their fathers, their leaders, had made a covenant with them they couldn't harm them. They couldn't do anything to them because they feared God. They knew that a treaty was a treaty. A deal was a deal. Verse 19. But all the princes said unto all the congregation, we have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will ever let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swear unto them. And the princes said unto them, let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation as the princes had promised them. I'm going to stop here. This is a long reading. Now I want you to see that they promised, they promised them that they would let them live in peace. And these people, these Gibeonites, these Hivites, they lived among the children of Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. And nobody touched them, nobody oppressed them because their fathers and ancestors had a treaty, had a covenant agreement 
even though these Gibeonites had obtained this treaty by deceit, by deception, they knew that if they violated those people, if they treated those people wrong, that they would bring upon themselves the wrath of God. Now, I'm talk we're talking hundreds of years, okay? So whatever you are dealing with now is not longer than what the Gibeonites and the Israelites and the people in the Bible had to deal with, okay? So I need you to listen to me. For those of you who think God is asleep. Now, hundreds of years later, Israel has a king called Saul. Saul, according to the Bible, is not a really good guy. One day, he decides he doesn't want to have any immigrants in his country. And I'm just, you know, speaking with modern talk. And he decides to kill off all the Gibeonites. And he does so. And God doesn't do anything. God lets him do what he wants to do. And Saul later on dies the death of the wicked. And God still doesn't do anything to pay back for the Gibeonites who have been wronged. He waits until his favorite king, David, becomes king. Then out of nowhere, for no absolutely seemingly no reason, God begins to put sickness and disease and the plague on all the Israelites. Let's take a look at what happened. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. I'll take you from verse 1. Okay? 2 Samuel chapter 21 from verse 1. It says, Then there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul. And for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Remember these Gibeonites from way back Joshua's time, hundreds of years ago? King Saul, not really understanding the consequences of violating the covenant treaty agreements that his ancestors had gone in with the Gibeonites, who were in the land before they came in there. Now, during the time of innocent David and the Israelites, God begins to punish Israel. Do you listen in America? Verse 2. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, and the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Verse 3. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord, that ye may bless Israel? Verse 4. And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver, nor gold of Saul, nor of his house, neither for us shall thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, that will I do for you. That's King David says, what you want, I will do for you. Whatever it is, 
And they answered the king, verse 5, the man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coast of Israel. Let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord of Gibeah, of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So David, Saul had a son called Jonathan, who happened to be a friend of David, and David, and he had a covenant relationship. So David protected that man's son. That man was now dead. But the other sons and grandsons of Saul, they were, they were, they were fair game. Verse 8. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare unto Saul, Ammonai and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Micah, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Basilai, the Meholite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord, and they fell all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. And Rispa, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for her, for her upon the rock from the beginning of harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven and permitted or suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beast of the field by night. And it was told David what Rispa, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. I'm going to stop here. You can read the rest of it. Okay. So what I wanted you to see was God's vengeance on people you and I will refer to as innocent. Hundreds of years after, okay? Hundreds of years after, covenant was broken, okay? You, you have to understand, you cannot just go about willy-nilly breaking covenants. And in every covenant agreement, different parties have different, different expectations. Okay? And we need to understand what those expectations are. You know, why have we spoken about these things today? We've spoken about these things because I want us to see the gravity of the situation that we are in as individuals and as a nation of peoples. And you cannot earn protection from God except you can offer a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. In this place you saw seven sons, grandsons of Saul had to be offered his descendants so that the wrath of God could be appeased. God has given us his son to take the place of our own sons and our own daughters and our very own selves. He has given us his son to be on a tree and hung and punished and sacrificed to atone for our wickedness, for the wickedness of our country. No, the wrath of God does not have to come 
upon America or upon any other nation that has been wicked. Our leaders can humble themselves, turn to God, accept the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of Kings of our land, and then look for a way to make atonements to the descendants of those that have been wronged. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's not the way around it. If you have repented, be willing to restore. But even though I speak like this, I know most of you are never going to turn. But let today be a day that you mark because the judgment of God is actually very close by. Most of you listening to my, the sound of my voice are going to see the wrath of God come upon this earth. You're going to see it in such a horrible way. There was going to be death and destruction all around you. I feel sorry for us. I feel sorry for us because that time, the time of judgment has come. You could see the dark clouds gathering. Fire. This whole place is about to be burnt up with fire. Friends, accept the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can be saved, not only in the world to come, but in this life also. Bow down, pray this prayer, not exactly in these words, but in your own way. Confess to God that you have been a sinner. Your nation has been in sin. Your family. And that you are sorry. And you ask for forgiveness for yourself and for your nation. That you know of a truth that Jesus Christ came to die, not just for you, but for your nation also. And that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead so he can lift you up and bring you out from the pits of hell. That you want his spirit to come into you and make you a new person and give you the power to live righteous. That you're willing to tell every person about what Jesus has done in your life. And that you ask him for mercy upon your country. You ask him for mercy upon your president, upon your nation, upon your leaders, so you can, by chance, have a peaceful life. God might pass over his judgment over your nation because of you. He can. So friends, I hope I've been able to show you with the scriptures that God might take a while, but whatever we sow, we are going to reap. There's no partiality with God. What he has spoken, he will perform. I pray that by the grace of God, we all shall be saved from the destruction that is to come. There is only one way. There is no other way. The only way out is through Jesus Christ. God bless you. I'll talk with you again tomorrow. Thank you.